With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 30th episode of my show. I use my show to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and also help you to better protect your privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel site. Also, please check out my websites, Symbus360.com and PrivacyGuidance.com. And guess what? I'm now teaching live online IAPP privacy certification classes. Send me an email if you want to know more. Now, if you're interested in being a sponsor or an advertiser on this radio show you're listening to right now, please also get in touch. I've mentioned before that I'm preparing to give a keynote and workshop in the Philippines in September, and I'm planning to get up close to some of the volcanoes in the Tagatay area as well as Corregidor Island, seeing what that has uh, historically I have on my bucket list visiting all seven continents, and I have two to go, Africa and Antarctica. So if any of you are from Africa or southern South America, which looks like it has the closest access to Antarctica, and you need help with information security or privacy, just get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. My August Privacy Professor Tips message was published on July 30. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please sign up for them. They've always been free. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email. Let me know who is your privacy hero. It can be at your work or it might be in your personal life. I'm recognizing privacy heroes in my monthly tips messages throughout 2018. So today, my tip of the week relates to a crime that is spreading, and it's really increasing dramatically. It's the use of skimmers, skimmers in ATMs, in self-pay systems, and even in public USB chargers. Now, here in Des Moines, Iowa, two people were arrested in June for installing ATM uh, skimmers in a gas station, and then elsewhere in the city at a convenience store. Just this month, August, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, police made arrests 
exposing a large Romanian crime group that was installing skimmers on ATMs and payment systems throughout the United States and thousands of credit card data information was taken just from the Wisconsin area alone. Now, late in 2017, U.S. federal authorities charged eight people in six different fraud cases around the country. Investigators say that altogether, this crime ring stole at least $3.5 million from around 7,000 victims using skimmers. And this is not a problem just within the United States. It's also hitting countries throughout the world. So those of you listening outside of the U.S., please be aware of this also. Now, the components for these skimmers are incredibly easy to get. I did a quick check this morning, and I found many different ones listed on eBay. So here are my tips for some of the ways to protect your personal and financial data from being skimmed at self-pay devices and at ATMs. First, look at that card slot. Does it look different than it did the last time you used it, or is it different from those others that are nearby? Is there a security seal over the card area, or is there any type of seal that says it's been voided? If anything looks suspicious, you'd be better off playing it safe and not using that particular um, ATM or self-pay device. Number two, wiggle that card slot. Skimmers are temporary by design, and they have to be put in and put on and removed pretty darn quickly so they don't attract much attention. Now, if you wiggle it and the slot moves, then that tells you not to put your card in it. Make sure instead that you alert an employee at the store or the police. And number three, if you're extra concerned, such as if there's been a rash of skimming incidents near you, for example, just don't use unattended machines. Pay in the store or withdraw cash from a supervised ATM or from tellers. Also, regarding those public USB charging stations, some of those are getting um, pretty aggressive with stealing your data. You see a lot of them in airports, right? And also in other public areas, malls and so on. The tiny skimmers for those USB charges can also be really easily and quickly inserted within them. And you can't easily tell that they're there. So here are a couple of things you can do to protect your data when charging. Number one, use a juice jack blocker. That's what they're typically called on your USB cord when you're charging. Now, you can get these on Amazon or whatever your favorite retail or electronics store is. And they only cost around $12 to $15 for about half a dozen of them. The second thing you can do is to use your own portable USB charger. Now, I have one that I got as a thank you gift for being a speaker at a conference. It's small. It's about the size of a lipstick tube. And it fits easily into my purse or my pocket. And it provides me with a four-hour charge to my smartphone. So these are some things that you can get anywhere from your favorite electronics or other type of online retailer. They cost around $15 to $70. This way, if you use one of these 
um, portable chargers, then you can avoid the public charging stations altogether. So these are just a couple of actions to help you avoid some of the most common types of skimmers, and it helps you to protect your cards, your data, money, and devices. So today on my show, we are going to discuss data protection and privacy laws and regulations and how to meet some of the requirements in some specific areas. In particular, we are going to discuss the EU General Data Protection Regulation, more commonly known as GDPR. And we're also going to talk about some U.S. privacy laws, including breach notice laws and some others. Organizations are really struggling to not only meet compliance with these regulations and laws, but, you know, there's a lot of confusion. How to effectively comply with all of the many different laws and regulations that can apply to just a single organization, and organizations are wise to be concerned. So just consider GDPR. It went into effect on May 25th of this year, 2018. The Information Commissioner's Office, or ICO, which is the UK's Data Protection Regulatory Authority, has confirmed that it received 1,106 data protection complaints from May 25th, the very first day it went into effect, through June 18th. And that's less than a month's time. Now, this was just one of the EU countries, too. So just think about all those other complaints that were received. If you're interested in knowing more about those, uh, the IAPP has a page on their site that is cataloging the GDPR complaints in each country. Now, in the U.S., we have HIPAA, we have GLBA, we have FISMA, we have the FTC Act, and we have dozens of other industry and government data protection regulations. Also, there are currently 54 U.S. state and territory breach notice laws and literally hundreds of other state and local level data protection and privacy laws. And there are new laws continuously emerging. For example, California recently and quite quickly passed what is considered by many to be the strictest data privacy law now in the U.S. It's the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, or AB 375, and it will go into effect 2020. Hundreds of millions of dollars of fines and many more types of penalties that stretch over 20 years per penalty have been applied under this collection of all these regulations and laws in the U.S. over the past 15 to 20 years. So what are hot topics that organizations need to know more about now for GDPR compliance? And how can organizations effectively comply with multiple laws and regulations that cover the same topics and are often in conflict with requirements? How should organizations approach complying with the sometimes conflicting requirements just within the 99 articles of the GDPR? Well, today I have the perfect guests to discuss these and other legal compliance issues with. 
I have Matthew McKinney. He's a member of Brown Winnick and co-chairs the law firm's nationally recognized government relations group. Matt is active in the firm's litigation and data security groups. Matt is a graduate of the West Des Moines Leadership Academy, the GDMP Leadership Institute, and Leadership Iowa. Matt has been recognized by the Des Moines Business Records 40 Under 40, and he's also been named as Super Lawyers uh, by the Super Lawyers Group as a rising star in government relations. I also have Thomas Story. Thomas is an associate attorney with Brown Winnick. In 2016, Thomas received his JD with highest honors from Drake University Law School here in Des Moines and is a member of the Order of the Coif. Thomas served as the judicial law clerk for Chief Justice Mark S. Cady of the Iowa Supreme Court and is a member of the Polk County Iowa State, and American Bar Associations. You can look at my Voice America Business Show site to see even more about both of my guests. Matt and Thomas, thank you so very much for being my guests today. Welcome to my show. Hey, thank you, Rebecca. We're excited to be here. Absolutely. Great. Well, we have a big topic today, and we'll try to get to as much as possible. But first, I think it will help our listeners both here in the U.S. and internationally to maybe hear a little bit more about each of your uh, backgrounds and specialties and then maybe a little bit more about Brown Winnick. So Matt, maybe you can start off and let us know about your legal specialties. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again, uh, Rebecca. We're excited to be a part of this conversation. Data security and data privacy has been an exploding area uh, here for Brown Winnick. Uh, we're a full-service law firm based in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, one of the largest law firms in the state. We do business uh, not only in the state of Iowa, but uh, across the region and frankly, uh, across the country, counseling businesses from often from startup, uh, you know, sizes, people that have an idea that want to make something big to uh, some of the largest uh, Fortune 500 companies uh, in the world. So we really uh, kind of span, uh, span the, the business spectrum when it comes to offering legal services. Um, Personally, uh, and thank you for the kind introduction, I, uh, I focus, as your introduction had indicated, on government relations, so work with a lot of uh, businesses uh, across the country with respect to their government relations or policy needs here in the state of Iowa. And uh, ironically, uh, in your intro, you talked about skimming. Uh, we actually worked very closely with the Iowa legislature this past legislative session to enhance penalties in the state of Iowa as it relates to uh, skimming devices and their use in the state of Iowa as well as their possession. Oh, so great. I do a lot uh, do a lot in the government relations uh, uh, field and also, as you also mentioned, uh, chair our data privacy and security uh, practice group here uh, at Brown Winnick and work closely with my colleague Thomas, who's with us. Uh, I focus largely on the notification side. So when we have a client uh, or a business out there that has had an issue uh, as it relates to a security incident. We help counsel them with respect to any uh, compliance uh, required under federal law, uh, HIPAA, GLBA, um, you mentioned the Federal Trade uh, Commission, FCTA. Um, We help on those things uh, as well as uh, coordinate with a lot of uh, vendors that assist in understanding the, the scope the breadth of a uh, breach incident and whether or not uh, notification is ultimately required and whether that notification is the government, for example, through an attorney general's office, uh, 
or to the customer or client uh, that may have been impacted. So a little bit about my practice. Maybe I'll uh, have uh, Thomas share a bit about his. Sure. sure. Thanks, Matt. Uh, hey, Rebecca and listeners, glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. Um, a little bit about me. I do litigation at Brown Winnick mostly, but have uh, found a bit of a niche here with data security and privacy. Uh, and in particular with regards to the GDPR, I've been helping companies both leading up to that May 25 date and now post that, that date and the in their compliance efforts with the GDPR, helping them prepare for the change and now helping them um, put together that standard work and the things like that that they need to uh, ensure compliance and uh, be compliant moving forward. So it's been been an interesting area. I'm excited that I got got a chance to be involved in it, and uh, it's certainly changing and very, very fun. So that's a little bit about what I do. Great. Well, you know, talking about the GDPR, it is uh, definitely a big expansion um, from what the EU used to have in place. And, you know, it has, as you know, I, I know you both know this very uh, well, but some of our listeners might not realize it has 99 different articles or sections uh, that have all sorts of different requirements within them. So I'm wondering, you know, which of those requirements are not requirements within the U.S. I mean, are there things that are going to be outliers that uh, folks who are in the U.S. that must comply with the GDPR because they have clients or patients who are citizens or residents there may not be thinking about? Yeah, I think there's a, there's quite a bit, actually, that a U.S. company might be surprised at. Uh, there, for example, I think I'd be surprised to get a request for access, right? Under the GDPR, EU citizens have the right to request a copy of the data that the company's processing on them, telling them not only what it is, but giving them a copy of it, telling them why they're processing it, what they're doing with it, how long they're keeping it, and where they're sending it. And I, I think companies, that, that's been a big concern I've seen, is how do we meet that those requests and uh, in- ensure we're protecting the rights of our customers. Um, deletion, the right of erasure to be forgotten, is another new thing that came with the GDPR, which is something that U.S. companies might not be familiar with. We're, you know, we're used to treating data here um, sort of a, just a piece of property, and, and you can pass it around and do what you want with it. But you know, now with the GDPR, we're seeing consumers kind of take that take that back and if they want say you can't have it anymore you cannot have my personal data and unless you have some sort of an exception or another reason to keep it you very well might have to delete it well and that can cause um, an interesting situation because like you said most laws or regulations in the US don't require that but then you know Matt earlier you you talked about working with HIPAA and as you know with HIPAA that does require certain records to be kept for at least uh, six years oftentimes mm-hmm. um, what happens if you have a healthcare uh, entity covered entity in the US that also has patients or insureds that are residents or citizens of the EU. And so now all of a sudden you have HIPAA to comply with, but also GDPR. And what if they ask about 
you know, access to their data, well, they should have that already under HIPAA. But what about that deletion? That deletion is going to be a sticky point, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think it'll be as scary as you think. I mean, the you have to look at the lawful basis for your processing. So if you're processing the data for the only reason is because you've got to keep it under HIPAA, you have to make certain reports to um, certain government agencies. You don't have to stop doing that. Now, you have to tell the data subject, I, I know you wanted to delete, us to delete your data, but look, we have to keep it because of this law, and that's the only thing we're going to do with it. Now, if the data subject, say you're processing it both for HIPAA compliance and for some other reason, um, I guess maybe this would be a, a unusual in the HIPAA context, but direct marketing. If you're doing those two things, right, you have to keep it for one, but you've got to request to delete it, and that, that request applies to that other purpose. You've got to stop using it for that. But if you're keeping it just to comply with a lawful uh, you know, requirement, you can still do that. One of those areas, Rebecca, that may come up that frequently is discussed when it comes to HIPAA is fundraising and the ability mm. for a, a hospital to use uh, or a clinic or any other medical provider to use certain information for fundraising. And there are some very specific uh, you know, regulations uh, at the federal level uh, that pertain to fundraising. And so this might be one of those areas where uh, you might be able to use information on the one hand for fundraising, but not information on the other hand for, uh, you know, or, or be able to retain it uh, for a medical requirement under the law. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing I guess maybe that I'd add that uh, both Thomas and I have seen in helping clients uh, kind of navigate the GDPR um, uh, maze, so to speak, is that there's still a lot of uncertainties out there. There's a lot of guidance, I think, that is yet to be uh, finalized, I, you know, there's there's guidance, I should say, but uh, final interpretations or court interpretations have, have yet to be uh, fully flushed out. So I think it's fair to say that there are some uh, gray areas in this space. And, and so that's why, you know, it's important to work with some folks that have been through it, that have seen it, that have worked with, uh, you know, regulators to at least try to obtain the best possible interpretation when it comes to some of those uncertainties that are out there. Yeah, that's very true. There's 99 articles, but then there's a, a bunch of more of recitals for interpreting those articles, and then you get working party guidance all the time. So, yeah, those working the working party 29 uh, guidance documents, you know, they're pointed to all the time, but yet they're constantly well, not constantly, but they frequently make updates to those and put out new ones. So, uh, what I love about what you described is the fact that um, you you uh, referred to really thinking about the situation and you didn't treat it as a, you know, all or nothing. And a lot of times when I'm, I subscribe to a lot of GDPR discussion groups and on LinkedIn, there's a bunch of groups that I follow. And too many times I see people saying either you have to always do this or never do that. But I like how you pointed out that, well, maybe for some types of information, you can keep it and other types you won't be able to, and it all comes down to having that documented, right? I mean, how important is that documentation to, to provide reasoning for why your organization is doing something like that? Oh, it's, it's crucial, and it's one of the, th- ones of the things that uh, we've been helping some of our clients put together. Um, again, we're used to, in the U.S., just kind of getting data, and it's coming from everywhere, and using it mm-hmm. kind of how we want and not really giving it a second thought. But that is, we're seeing change. 
And it's, you know, you need to think about what data you're collecting, why you're using it, et cetera, et cetera. And make sure that you're doing that in a way that is, um, you know, respectful of the data subject's privacy. And, you know, when you're talking about that documentation, then, have you been working with a lot of U.S. organizations to, instead of creating brand new from scratch policies and procedures, maybe helping them to update what they already have just so that they become more in sync with these new requirements? Sure. I mean, the backbone of your privacy approach as a business is going to be your privacy policy. That's your outward-facing agreement with the people that use your services and give you their data. And uh, we've been managing a lot of updates to privacy policies. I think in the weeks leading up to May 25, people were getting inundated with these, hey, we've updated our terms of use and our privacy policy. So mm-hmm. sorry about all those. But um that, yeah, that, that is definitely something that we've helped with and put together, and, and there's ways to adapt to the kind of new approach. And then you have to look inward as well and, and change the way your business operates, maybe, to comply with this. Yeah, I mean, we've worked with some, uh, Rebecca, quite large organizations that for the first time have really had to look internally, to Thomas's point, and do kind of a, a, a data audit, so to speak, and, and understand where their data is held, how it's held, when it's deleted, or how it's deleted, and who's responsible for it, and ask sorts of questions that people have never asked of their business before. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got we've developed kind of a matrix, so to speak, to help through that. And, and when you start on its face, it seems like a simple task. But once you scratch the surface and, and really dig into it, um, you realize just how broad uh, of a reach um, you know, your business practice can go when it comes to acquiring uh, data. Oh, yes, yes. It, I mean, especially then when you start thinking about vendors, which um, we have a break coming up here in just a few seconds. So uh, when we come back, I want to get into some specifics that are not only under GDPR, but also under some of the U.S. regulations and laws, uh, and then talk about how organizations can address both of those and be in compliance with all the different requirements. So uh, thank you, Matt and Thomas, for this first segment. But right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. We're speaking today about GDPR and also other data protection and privacy laws and regulations in the U.S. and elsewhere. We're speaking with Matt and Thomas, legal experts from Brown Winnick. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my uh, website, Simbus360.com and PrivacyGuidance.com. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. We are speaking today with Matt McKinney and Thomas Story, attorneys and legal experts from Brown Winnick. And we're talking about GDPR and U.S. data protection and privacy laws and so many of the different issues uh, that come along with that. So, when we left, we had just been speaking about GDPR in general and some of the things common and other regulations. I want to now start focusing more on breach response because, of course, we're getting more and more breaches all the time. It's a big issue. In the U.S., too, when we think about breach response, we have, as I mentioned earlier, those 54 state and territory breach notice laws. We have multiple federal and industry breach notice requirements, and now GDPR provides yet another set of breach response requirements. So, Matt and Thomas, from your legal perspective, what are some important steps that organizations should take to know which breach notice laws apply to them and what they need to do about them? Well, uh, the first uh, the first thing that we often get involved with, and, and this would be, uh, I guess, initially outside of GDPR, but 
you're doing business in the United States, um, you know, there's a lot of different things that will dictate uh, what requirements you may or may not have with respect to uh, a breach. And the very first question that we always try to identify is, first of all, did a breach occur? Um, and a, a breach, it's, uh, we all hear it every day, whether you're watching the news or, or uh, you know, reading the paper, you know, you kind of take the term lightly, a breach is pretty obvious, uh, we all think, but, um, you know, when, when you get down to it, it's a legally defined term, and, and how a breach is defined uh, in the state of Iowa, for example, uh, is different than how it's defined in other states, and how a breach is defined uh, in the healthcare industry is also different uh, than how it is defined in the financial services industry. And so, uh, as you appropriately mentioned, uh, Rebecca, the, we do have a, what I call a patchwork quilt of legal regulations uh, in the United States with respect to how each state has adopted uh, a different type of uh, breach standard and different type of uh, breach notification requirement. Um, and so, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, under HIPAA, uh, you know, a breach is defined as an unauthorized acquisition access, use, or disclosure of, of personal health information. And, and you have to uh, have a certain level of risk associated with that unauthorized access uh, or acquisition or use of data in order for it to be determined to be a breach. And so there are a series of factors. Uh, no one factor is determinative, but an analysis is done uh, by counsel to determine whether a risk uh, that that information could be used improperly, uh, just to put it uh, simply. And if there, if there is a high risk, it's considered a breach. If it's considered a low risk or no risk, uh, it may not be considered a breach. And one of the key factors, at least under HIPAA, and, uh, and frankly here in the state of Iowa as well, that, is, uh, that goes into that calculation or that analysis is whether or not that information is encrypted whether it is, uh, it is rendered unreadable or non-decipherable uh, if somebody were to uh, have unauthorized access to a computer system. So that's an example, Rebecca, of what we look at. We first try to make sure that uh, if you do have a security incident, we want to make sure that, it tech, that you know, if you do have an incident, do you really need to report it? And the question is, well, is there a breach? And so that's uh, the, you know, one of the first things that we really focus on from a legal perspective. Obviously, we involve technical experts from the forensic side to help us understand the scope, the breadth of the breach, whether or not there was uh, information that was actually uh, just accessed or was it actually acquired. Um, and so uh, from the legal side, you know, determining whether or not it quote unquote is a breach will help guide our uh, investigation and compliance methods uh, uh, go on from there. Well, and a big difference that I've seen with um, with GDPR then, what that brings into the, the consideration as well is that time frame. If, if you've decided that something is a breach, the, the time frame under U.S. regulations and laws such as HIPAA or high tech and others are there quite a bit shorter in GDPR, right? That's that's absolutely right, Rebecca. The, I think it's shortened down to 72 or mm -hmm. definitely as soon as reasonably possible. Um, Whereas with HIPAA, you generally have up to 60 days after you've made a determination. Right. So it's quite a bit tighter. I, I think it's, you see it, there's a 
a couple other differences in GDPR with regards to breach that I might point out. I mean, sure. breach, the legal definition that Matt's talking about, it, you know, like he indicated, changes depending on what jurisdiction you're in. And for GDPR, one big difference is that it includes not only unauthorized access, but a loss of access. So not mm. someone got our stuff, but we can't get our own stuff, right? Mm. And um, one of the examples the working party gave was, you know, what if your power goes out and you can't can't access that data during that time? You do not have access to that data. That is an incident. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, it doesn't need to be reported, maybe, but I, I think um, it's pretty common to report breaches in the EU. You see that reported a lot more frequently than in the U.S. And the difference is each breach is, you know, maybe the response, maybe the follow-up isn't that more significant. It's just a different way of approaching it that's pretty interesting. Rebecca, yeah. I, I would add, uh, you know, some other things to, to I guess, uh, further address your question. You know, what do, what do uh, folks look at or businesses look at for purposes of, you know, their requirements? So in addition to the various laws that we talked about in terms of um, Graham-Leach-Bliley or, or HIPAA, and in addition to the individual states, you want to look at your industry. Are you in the healthcare industry? Are you in the financial services industry? What sort of data do you actually uh, possess? Um, just because you um, may not be a hospital or a clinic, it doesn't mean you don't have health data. Uh, and just because you're not a, a credit union or a bank doesn't mean you don't have financial information. So you also kind of, as we talked about earlier, when you do your data audits, um, you want to understand the type of information you hold. Uh, beyond that, you know, one thing that people often overlook is what their contractual obligations are. So while we have legal obligations with respect to, you know, how we're supposed to treat data and when we're going to provide notification and how we're going to provide that notica- notification, the agreements that businesses have amongst their clients as well as with other businesses can also specify what is considered a breach and when notification is required and how it's required. So not only do you look at some governmental regulations, you also have to look at private business to business or business to consumer uh, agreements in in contract. Well, and I think that's such an important point, especially for so many uh, growing numbers of vendors that do business for other businesses. Um, A lot of my Simbus clients are cloud services or they are business associates of covered entities under HIPAA or or other types of uh, industries. But, you know, a lot of these vendors provide services throughout multiple industries as well. So they have different types of data throughout different types of industries. And a lot of times when I've uh, spoken with vendors, it's kind of scary to think about how they are really not prepared or don't know what constitutes a breach and how quickly they need to get to their business clients uh, to let them know that a breach occurred. It seems like that's a a big um, vulnerability for a lot of organizations when they don't let their vendors know what is expected of them with regard to getting in touch with them if a breach occurs. I mean, is that something, what, what advice would you have for organizations who have vendors uh, and, you know, to let them know how quickly they need to get back to them if they have a breach or even to let them know what a breach is to begin with? Well, it absolutely should be a contractual requirement. Uh, it, it, 
in, under the GDPR specifically, you have this controllers and processors distinction, right? And mm-hmm. as the name suggests, it depends on who is controlling the data and the other one might just be processing it. Oftentimes you see vendors really act as a conduit for the data and they don't necessarily make decisions about the data or what happens to it. They, they leave that in the hands of the controller. But as you said, a breach can occur at the processor level. And if that happens, they have an obligation and, and it's required to be part of the contract by the GDPR, in fact, to uh, handle that appropriately and to bring it to the attention of the, of the controller uh, promptly and with enough time for the controller to meet their own obligations. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be the controller who is um, going to have to pay for it if something happens. And I might uh, make a, a quick comment here for listeners who aren't familiar with these terms. Under GDPR, the data controller is the business that has the relationship with the customer. So they're the ones that the vendors are doing the work for. So the data controller would be like the primary business. And then the data processor is what GDPR calls what we normally reference as the vendors. So just uh, to help listeners understand that a little bit. Um, so that's 72 hours. So we have in HIPAA, you know, like you said, up to 60 days, but yet we have 72 hours in GDPR. And that starts when you've, when the, the breach has been identified, correct? That's both? correct. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard. Uh, you know, we, we see that frequently uh, with respect to HIPAA and GLBA. You know, just because, uh, for example, you walk into your office on a Monday morning and your computers are down or there's, uh, you know, some message on your screen, does that start the time clock? You know, and and a lot of people will uh, debate that issue. And, you know, the reality is you don't know whether you have a breach until you've gone through the, you know, oftentimes the forensic side of things to determine, you know, was thing, uh, was data actually acquired or was it accessed? Uh, did they actually get to the server or were they just knocking on the door, so to speak? Um, and then you compare what you learn through the investigation stage to what the requirements and the definitions are on the legal side. And you do the analysis that we talked about earlier. It's only at that point that you can truly answer the question as to whether or not there was a breach. Right. And if you aren't following the requirements. I mean, you have to do it. It's a thoughtful process going through this consideration. So it's not just a checklist. It's actually requiring some critical thinking in order to identify whether or not it's a breach. But, you know, the related fines and penalties under all these different laws and regulations uh, can be huge. I mean, we already know HIPAA has had, what, um, penalties over $10 million in a few cases and a lot in the millions. And then GDPR can be up to, what, 4% of your annual revenues? I mean, that that should be motivation. I don't know if either of you want to talk about those penalties and how it might have been impacting some of the businesses that have been on the receiving end of those penalties. Under the GDPR, I don't, from as far as I know, I don't think we've had a penalty imposed yet. Now, there's a big uh, big complaint going on with some of the, the tech giants that will mm-hmm. maybe result in some. But as of right now, there hasn't been much. And I, I think I mentioned earlier just a different approach to breach response in the EU than what we're maybe used to in the U.S. You know, if you take my example of a loss of access being a, being a breach, being a security incident, 
you're probably not going to have any penalties from that because it doesn't sound like it's a big deal. You, know? you do have to tell someone about it. You know, you have to let it out. But if if it's not severe, if the at the end of the day, if the person's privacy has not been impacted in a meaningful way, yes, uh, the authorized penalty can be huge, but is it actually going to be imposed? Yeah, I, I think you know we're still just given that GDPR went live, so to speak, just a few months ago. We're still, uh, you know, uh, better understanding the the approach that's going to be taken, the enforcement that will occur. Um, and and you're right, though, Rebecca, when it comes to uh, HIPAA, I mean, we have certainly seen some very large fines. Um, and uh, the same with uh, same with, frankly, the uh, the FTC uh, mm-hmm. moving on, moving on folks that have engaged in, you know, what unfair trade practices may be how they, on the one hand, may advertise that we take your uh, security and privacy very uh, seriously. And then on the other hand, it's determined that that same business that put that in their marketing material is using, uh, you know, uh, password uh, as their password and and not uh, using firewalls or updating their antivirus or anything like that. And and so we've seen the FCT, uh, FTC uh, take action. We've seen HIPAA take action. Even here in Iowa, our attorney general's office has the ability to uh, levy civil penalties in the amount of, I believe it's $40,000 per violation. So it's not insignificant. And I think as a result of that, you're seeing more and more people uh, begin to take this area of the law seriously. Uh, and, and consequently, we are, as I said uh, at the outset, we're seeing an explosion of work in this area simply because folks understand that this is the sort of thing that can make or break a, a company. You have a big breach like this, you, you know, your CEO uh, may uh, be forced to resign, your customers could lose confidence, and you may be out of business if you don't take things seriously. So it's, uh, it is a very important area. Well, and I think uh, consumers and the general public are becoming much more sensitive to the fact that there are laws that uh, exist. And so I think they're becoming more aware of whether or not companies are actually following their promises that they're making out there, you know, on the their uh, privacy notices. But, you know, I, it's, talking about the general public knowing about this, I've gotten a lot of questions from my listeners, and I want to go over a few of them with you. Um, and thank you, listeners, for sending this in. Please uh, keep sending them in. I love getting your questions. So here's one specific to the GDPR I wanted to, to start with. Uh, I had a question from a listener, and they said GDPR includes a lot of requirements that seem to be in conflict. For instance, they have a requirement to remove information about the person, the data subject is what it's called under GDPR, uh, after the relationship has ended. So that would be such as in Article 19 and Recital 66. But then they say they point to the fact that Um, The data controller has to provide information related to this person uh, that's often related to their access to data and to transactions and also in periodic auditing such as under SOX and so on and forensic analysis after they've left the company and they point to Article 88 and Recital 155 and possibly others in addition to the other U.S. regulations and others. So how... What should organizations do when it looks like they have conflicting requirements uh, to know which of these take precedence over the other? What advice do you have for our listeners trying to figure this out? 
Yeah, I, I think we talked about this a little bit at the top of the show in a, in a different context, but the answer is pretty much the same. It's that if you have an obligation to keep the info, then you can keep the info. Now, if, and it looks like they're in conflict, but again, you have to look at why you're keeping it and what you're doing with it, right? And um, another thing to consider is, is it possible to pseudo or fully anonymize the data so that you're not keeping it in a personally identifiable form? And then um, maybe you could get out of the requirement that way. But again, if you have an obligation to keep it, a legal obligation to keep it, you know, to perform a contract or to meet meet some other uh, regulation, then you can keep the data. But if you don't, you probably have to get rid of it. Okay. And that, that's very helpful. I think they were confused because it, is, it was even within GDPR itself. But I think, you know, as you mentioned, it, it takes some critical thinking for each situation, right? And also documentation for why they're making their decisions. Um, now, another question. Okay, so you, I know you guys have seen talk of the newly passed California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, or AB 375, and that's being talked about so much. A lot of people talk about it as being the U.S. version of GDPR, and that's debatable. We're not going to debate that. That's just what people are calling it, but um, it is a significant change uh, or a significant new law. Now, it doesn't go into effect until 2020, but do you see uh, this specific question was about marketing. Do you see any significant change in how companies can market to U.S. consumers under that new California law? And I would say, you know, are there changes under GDPR as well since we're talking about that? Yeah, absolutely there are. I mean, the, the like you said, the CCPA won't go into effect until 2020. And even then, it's only going to apply to um, – certain types of businesses of certain sizes and the like. But overall, overall, I think it's been mentioned that this consumers are treating their own data differently and they're putting a value on it that we haven't really seen before. Um, so now when someone gives a company their data, they have expectations with how it's going to be used. And that is defined in the privacy policy, but it's also just something that the consumers are becoming more and more aware of and maybe reacting poorly to uh, aggressive marketing techniques that don't necessarily respect their privacy. So I think at the end of the day, if you're a business, you want your customer to be happy, you want more customers, but with this, with how you treat their data, we are seeing a change. Companies are looking internally, they're saying, what are we doing with it? Do we need to be keeping it? And um, how, how can we make our customers happier about where we're sharing this data and what we're doing with it, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think you are seeing change. I think you will continue to see a change as more states enact their own laws. And hopefully we get a federal law that can um, do do something about this patchwork. But that's, it is something that's changing. And we yeah. certainly have a, you know a narrative uh, a public narrative where, uh, heck, just yesterday I was watching uh, the Today Show and they had a, a gentleman on there talking about how a certain operating system was tracking uh, the location of a uh, location of the folks that use the operating system. And it's, it's a narrative, a public narrative that continues to build and, and it would ultimately led to the law change in California. I think uh, similarly would help uh, lead to what we see in Europe as it relates to GDPR. 
Um, and there is pressure, I think, from a public policy perspective on the folks in D.C. to uh, move towards a, a more business friendly, if you will, or at least easier to administer uh, or comply with uh, requirement on notification. I mean, trying to when we sit down with a business that has had the unfortunate uh, experience of having a, a, a breach incident and we talk to them about how they got to comply with 35 different state laws and notify 17 different attorney generals and all customers in these states and and you got to provide uh, uh, you know certain credit monitoring in these states but not in those states and it's a mess and uh, I think uh, policymakers elected officials are starting to recognize that uh, they're starting to appreciate the importance of data which is why here in Iowa we saw uh, changes as it related to skimming laws to enhance that, to try to deter that sort of uh, unlawful activity. And you're just seeing an overall shift in, in people's mindset. Uh, this is just such a, a fascinating topic and so much to cover. We're, we only have a few minutes left already. The time's gone by quickly. For my last question, though, I'm going to kind of combine a couple of questions. So, you know, I had another question from a listener that was asking about the best way to provide data subjects access to their personal data. And, you know, that, that involves a lot. So I guess I'm wondering... Does Brown Winnick have any resources that you can point to for our listeners, like anything that talks about, you know, how to provide access uh, to data subjects when they request their personal data or anything else that has to do with GDPR or privacy breach or any of those other topics that you uh, described at the beginning of the show that you cover? Yeah, we, we've been working with companies uh, approaching this right of access requirement. I mean, if you're a consumer and you submit a request for access, you want it back and it's required to come back in some way that you can discern what it is. So it, a, a file that's hopefully you know readable to you and normally would be. Um, but that and many other resources we do have prepared. Um, we have some. You know, guidance, if you check out our website at brownwinnick.com, we do have a page for our data privacy and security group, and we believe have published just a, a short little handout called, you know, GDPR is here, are you ready for it? And that should uh, hopefully address some of the questions. It provides a nice overview. But other than that, I mean, we, we are, you know, we're here and able to help with, with data privacy and security issues. And you know, GDPR specifically or whatever. Yeah, and, and you know we've we've developed internally countless uh, right. sort of uh, materials as it relates to as I mentioned earlier, kind of a a, a database that helps uh, helps clients walk through and do an audit of their information and right. other materials as it relates to policy uh, policies and manuals and compliance with uh, various uh, requirements. So certainly have all that, you know, each client is unique, each circumstance is unique. Uh, and so we cater our approach, you know, based upon the uh, individual needs of a client. Absolutely. Great. And, you know, uh, to our listeners, I will put the contact information for Matt and Thomas uh, in their bios. So check out that um, on my show website and you can get that information. So thank you so much, Matt and Thomas, for being on the show today. Thank you, Rebecca. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you.
Sure. Uh, today, I've been chatting with Matt McKinney and Thomas Story, lawyers and legal experts from Brown Winnick about GDPR and U.S. data protection and privacy laws. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. And you can find recordings of all my past shows on your favorite podcast outlets, iTunes, Google Play and so many others, along with going to the voiceamerica.com business channel website. Please contact me if you're interested in being a show sponsor or advertiser, and also contact me if you need any help with information security, privacy, or compliance keynotes, being an expert witness, or for more information about Symbus360.com. Use Rebecca Herald at RebeccaHerald.com. I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.